This is part two of a three-part podcast. Hi, my name's Ryan. I've been a supporter of Paul's for many years now. I wish to get the podcast and video creation part of the system we call Paul back up to full speed. And I think Patreon support is a big part of that system. Go over to patreon.com slash Paul Wheaton. Make a pledge for each artifact that Paul creates. Again, the site is patreon.com slash Paul Wheaton. You can also find the link in the podcast notes. Enjoy the podcast. Does anybody else have anything from before water is the key? I do. Nope. Nope. Go, Katie, go. Well, um, I thought it was super fascinating. Only cool soil absorbs rainwater. And so, if the soil is warmer than the rain, the water will roll over the surface of the ground and cannot penetrate beneath it. I have fascinating. I want to run out and test it. Like I, I never heard that before, and it's really important to me. And so I, I, I think that's amazing. Um, the forests are so important. Uh, and I have a, I have a general desert-related question for any time later, whenever you want. Oh, uh, well, I, I think we should strike while the iron's hot. What's your desert-related? We are reading a book called Desert or Paradise. And uh, and you can ask your question, and I'm assuming you're asking me, and I'm kind of feeling like while Missoula is technically mountain desert, I kind of feel like it's it's not the same level of desert like we see in the pictures here, which I think that that top picture, I think that that's the Spain project, but the bottom picture is the Portugal project. It seems like it'd be the same place. Anyway, what, Katie, is your desert question? Thank you. My desert question. When I first looked at the book, I was thinking, oh, desert or paradise. This is going to be like a how-to of how to turn a desert into a paradise. I was completely wrong about that, wild guess, looking at the title. <laughs> but it made it did make me think about um, how any place can be a desert. In fact, a lot of places that I thought were like a natural desert are perhaps were long ago not at all a desert. And that the trees and the forests and the water systems there have just been so disrupted that it has become a desert. And so my, my thought and question is, is it is there a desert ecosystem to aim for? Or if you could get and more and more or is like is desert not good unless it's the best you can get. Uh, you're reminding me of a lot of people who got very upset with. Oh man, Zimbabwe! Help me out. Bill Help me Mollison. Out. The whole. Not Bill Mollison. Um, the the TED Talk. Alan oh. Savory. Who oh. got upset with Alan Savory because they're like, deserts are cool. You're trying to destroy all deserts. And and no, actually, there are some parts of the world that are going to be desert almost no matter what you do. But a whole lot of the planet that we think of as desert, that's been desert for hundreds, even over a thousand years, was has been desertified by the actions of humans. True. And that can be restored. So it's not that desert is bad. It's just that so much of 
what looks like desert doesn't need to be desert. But a lot of, so ecosystems happen. That could be a shirt. I, I mean, over, especially a long period of time, there's going to come developing whatever can exist in the ecosystem. Like at the bottom of the sea, inside the very hot vents, there's little microbes that are happy there. I mean, I feel like given long enough, any system is an ecosystem. But are we... It seems good. It seems like when you add topsoil and you add biodiversity, like what good measure of... More and more diversity until the system is um, sustaining itself. Well, a bare rock is, just, is you know, sustaining itself pretty good. What if you've got, Right. Like, well, he, here's an interesting... <laughs> Go ahead, Julia. Is, okay, so here's an interesting thing. There's... I have heard a reasonably strong argument that most of Australia was not as deserty as it looks now. And the interesting thing is it was the aboriginals who hunted the megafauna to extinction that led to the desertification of Australia. So it's been going on in different places, uh, you know, for a long time. We, we often hear about the Middle East and being called the Fertile Crescent. And yet if you go and look, it doesn't look very fertile. It's changed. And that was one of the first places that people started plowing the ground. But I did think it was really interesting to think that desertification could happen without a plow. And that was the argument I heard about Australia, that it was the loss of the megafauna that led to desertification. I want to take a step, and that is that suppose you have, I don't know, a million acres of desert. And in the middle of that desert, you have 40 acres that is desert, and you decide to turn it into a lush jungle. And uh, it takes 50 years. But you start off by you know, planting a few trees and nurturing those trees to be bigger, and then a few more trees, etc. You do all the, all the permaculture things. So out of a million acres, you've got this one little patch that you've created a, a different culture, a different, a di- you've created a different thing. And so it's kind of like, uh, all right, so um, have you screwed up what was there? It seems like there's still plenty of this ecosystem, this desert ecosystem. There's gobs of desert ecosystem. Um, and you've only introduced this small alternative ecosystem. In in this particular scenario that I mentioned, does does that seem okay? Then I'm thinking we're, we're all going to say, yeah, that that seems like that's that's okay. But of course, the next step comes is like, okay, well, what if we took all of the million acres and converted it over to this new thing, so there's no more desert left. Is that okay? 
and then I think the answer is going to be, boy, that that's debatable. Some people are going to argue that, you know, at half you should have stopped, or at ten percent you should have stopped, or at ninety percent you should have stopped. Um, and some people are going to argue that at a, that no, it's perfectly fine right now. It's better now by our sets of standards. Now, of course, with a million acres of desert, is it? Are we going to obliterate any kind of biological distinctiveness along the way? I mean, there's other deserts. Do they have the same biological distinctiveness, and that will continue? Um, another question is: Is like this patch, this million-acre patch of desert? Was it always a desert, like, before people showed up? And it's like, that gets a little dodgy because, I mean, people kind of started showing up at about the time that the last ice age ended. And it's, so it's kind of like, uh, things were kind of wiped out then anyway. What would, what would nature be doing if there were no human beings? That's their argument. So... The, the, when we start exploring this question of, is this an okay thing to do, it can end up in an awkward space. Now let's take the same set of skeptical eyes and turn them on the United States of America farmland. And it's kind of like, okay, this used to be a forest, and now it's been, all of the swamps have been drained. All of the rivers have been literally straightened by the U.S. Corps of Army Engineers. Um, uh, all of the lumpy, bumpy land that was here before has been flattened to make it convenient for tractors. And it's all very homogenized now. And we have eliminated every tree for as far as the eye can see in the name of agriculture, whereas this used to be a big forest. Now, how do we feel about that? Well, it's producing the food that we're actually eating. It's kind of hard to say it's bad while, you know, between mouthfuls of the food that came from that plot of land. And so... Um, can we take part of that and make it permaculture? Kind of seems like this is a slam dunk. Like, we're all okay with that. Like, if we were to adopt, say, 20 acres of, of that million acres of farmland and we grew more calories on it using less inputs... It kind of seems like that's a that's a solid win. No one no one's going to complain about that. So I do think yeah, there's already plenty of plenty of land that's already been kind of that's that's pretty far gone from how it was, uh, you know, before we showed up or before the Native Americans showed up or whatever time. So. Uh, that's the land we, I guess you would say, let's put, let's try to put this back in, into our permaculture paradise. Let's terrace this and plant all our trees and, uh, you know, non-native trees and all that stuff. Let's definitely not touch the stuff that hasn't been touched already. Well, 
Oh, boy. Uh, I mean, it's a can of worms. Yeah, if they have it, don't touch the stuff that hasn't been touched. So, it's kind of like, so part of me is kind of like, oh, I bet it's been touched. Yeah. And yeah. it hasn't been touched kindly. But, yeah. but okay, uh, let's not touch the stuff that hasn't been touched. It's, it's like... I, I agree that there's some of that that's, that's yeah, but it's kind of like, um, you know, do we have a permit that's going to go out and get 200 acres and they're going to be rolling up their sleeves just when somebody shows up and says, uh, because you're a permit, you can't touch this land because I've decided to say that it hasn't been touched. And, and this guy, Kyle, once said in the podcast that that's naughty to touch something that hasn't been touched yet. And then the permit tries to say it has been touched. I mean, look at all this stuff. I could, I got all this evidence, and it's like, no, it hasn't. I'm saying it hasn't. So you have to not do anything here because I say. So I kind of feel like I don't, I don't want to state that. Um, but but what I do want to state is to say that there are people who will debate it, and 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 things of that nature. It gets really complicated. Um, so I guess I think that the question that Katie brings up is, if we're looking at a desert, should we? Should we make a jungle and a desert? And and I kind of feel like it gets. I mean, a. I think. I think it's critical that we do. And and I also kind of wonder like. How much, how, I mean, first of all, we've got a lot of desert. And we got, and, and the price of that land is damn near free. Because nobody wants to touch it. And the desert is getting bigger all the time. And I think that we have the ability to reverse that desertification. And when the opportunity presents itself to take on a patch of desert, and then, you know, green the desert. At this time, any permi that's that's presented with the opportunity to do it is going to be a drop in the bucket. And is and, espe- and it, especially today, any permi that takes that on and and works at it their whole life, they will not reverse global desertification. That's true. There's a there's a scale going on. It's when we get to the point where uh oh we might extinct this desert turtle because the entire desert habitat has been turned into lush, beautiful forest, maybe that's time to have that conversation. But it's we're a long way from that. I think part of my question is given a book called Desert or Paradise, it seems to be making a pretty clear statement that it sounds like he'd want the paradise. Um, out of those two options. But if I were to guess, like, this is a translation, if I were to guess, like, what would, does Katie think that Sepp Holzer would say? Uh, I feel like he would go, I mean, who am I to know, but I feel like he would go to the environment and sit in the desert and look around and say, does this feel like a healthy, happy ecosystem, or does this feel like a broken wasteland? I think almost every place that Sepp Holzer has ever been invited has, his position has been this used to be lush and green and now the 
choices of humans have degraded it to be a desert. And so let's restore, you know, what once was. Let's, let's bring the green and lush back. Um, and so I, I don't know of, of him ever looking at it. Now, I do think that it could be possible that for 10,000 years, there's a, there's a spot where for 10,000 years, it has only been desert. And, um, but that would take us back to the Ice Age. And it's kind of like, uh, well, during the Ice Age, it was icy, which can be a kind of a desert. But, um, and it's kind of like, uh, maybe, maybe it's time to take that into a lush jungle. But the important thing is, is that any piece of desert that we look at, it's like, uh, uh, A, one person trying to make a difference is going to make such a small difference on the on the global scale. Even if even if all the permies in all of the world tried, they still would not get total global desertification numbers to stop. We need more permies. Oh yeah, and I kind of feel like the more demonstrations we can get the better chance we have of reversing global desertification. And so it's like, I think, I think for now, let's, let's set that question aside for a hundred years. And, um, I mean, the, the question itself, I think, will only impede our current efforts. You know, and I, I do think that there's a lot of people, I mean, for the work that I do, the number of trolls that come out of the woodwork to say don't and stop and, and you know, all of their different justifications and reasons and ugliness is, is like, it's, I'm, I'm kind of amazed that people can think of these things. And, and it's like, uh, this would be one. They would, there's going to be people that are going to say, like, you know, protect the desert ecosystem, protect the existing desert ecosystem, no matter whether it's, because we made it this way a thousand years ago or a hundred years ago or five thousand years ago, it doesn't matter. You know, there's a desert ecosystem that's there now and we want to preserve that. Even though we've got a million acres and you're only working on 20, I don't care. I'm here to stop you. And I kind of feel like we need so many more examples. It's like, let's, let's, let's skip that. Let's do the sepulcher thing. We will wave our hands dismissively and say, you're just jealous. And, uh, okay. and, and get back to work. Yes. All Moving right. On. Moving on. Water is the key. Water is the key to a stable climate. And, uh, I, I, I just, I just wrote, I just marked that up. That's, that's kind of it. Water is the key to a stable mm-hmm. climate. I think, I think that is true. I think that is true. I think that uh, the work that Sepp's doing, the work that Zach Weiss is doing, which is basically based on Sepp's work, um, I think that there's other people too. Uh, uh, John D. Liu, um, uh, Willie Smits, yeah. um, uh, Jeff Lawton. I think the work, the work of many, many people, I mean, this work of reversing desertification is the key. It is it is the most important key. 
Uh, imagine a landscape of ponds and lakes. During the day, the sun warms the water up, but only on the surface. Deeper down, the water stays cool. During the night, that heat is slowly released, and through dew formation and evaporation, the whole area is cooled and kept moist. Universities do not teach the knowledge of natural water management yet. A lot of what I talk about contradicts general theories and is completely new to hydrologists and water engineers. This does not come as a surprise to me, however, because at universities, water is treated as a chemical formula and not as a living being. I can only cooperate with water and understand it when I treat it with respect and as a living being. Purple? You probably imagines things through water's eyes as well. True. As what it does, does water with trees want? and pigs. What does the water want? True. Is it purple? Is this purple? Is Sep purple? It's Sep purple. Sep's a little what purple, but it gets brown results. Um. Well, the water has microbes in it. The microbes are alive. True. Mm-hmm. Is that what he's talking about? I don't think that's what he's talking about. Yeah. I think he's talking about... That's part of what he's talking about. But I think it's... You know... Oxygen. It's like it's a shortcut for the microbes and minerals and oxygen and other dissolved things in the water that are that you don't get when you when you treat water like when you distill water or you put it in a um, you know a big reservoir and you put it in concrete and all that stuff. I'm pretty nerdy. The, you know, in Star Trek is Scotty, he's like, he basically treats the Enterprise as if it were alive. Uh, I think a lot of systems or, you know, cars or other, if you treat them as if they were alive because they're a system and they have different parts and they're sort of doing well or not doing well, there are a lot of parallels, maybe useful parallels. Yeah, you got to treat it holistically, the whole water, as opposed to just the pH and dissolved solids or whatever you need to put on a graph. Any more comments about water is the key? Well, do you think he's speaking more as a, like, like people who give their car a name and, like, that's the relationship to it? Or do you feel like it's purple? I, I kind of feel like there's some purple there, but I also kind of feel like it's it's kind of like it's kind of like dowsing. When you when you go out and you do the dowsing thing, and you got the rods and you're walking along, and then those rods move and you didn't move them, you're like, holy shit! And then there's all the scientists that say dowsing's a bunch of bullshit. It's all lies and crap. And and it's like, but when you're actually out there holding the rods and then the rods move, and you're like, I didn't do that. I think 
that what we're looking at here is something that we do not yet understand. Mm-hmm. Anything that we call magic is something that has not yet been explained by science. I, and I think that one of the things, instead of using the word magic, we could use the word purple. Now, you know, with the purple stuff is like a lot of stuff that is total dingbatism. And will, you know, for the next hundred thousand years, it'll it'll just be written off as wackadoodle crap back in the two thousands. Um. So uh, I I kind of I kind of feel like with in this in the realm of purple, I think that there's a lot of stuff that we do not yet understand or that. Science has not yet been able to explain. I think that there is stuff that Seth is doing that is beyond my comprehension when it comes to water. As far as, like, life in water and what he's talking about right here. So, I kind of... I kind of feel a couple things. On the one hand, I feel like the dude has his purple streak. And simultaneously, I feel like this is probably something that is legit, and I don't yet understand it. Mm -hmm. So what I've done is I've thoroughly dodged your question, and I think I did a good job of it. (laughs) You should go into politics, Bob. (laughs) I'm question dodging. I I feel like uh, part of me thinks it's hooey, and part of me thinks it's stuff I just haven't figured out yet. And and it's like I'm confused and intrigued, and um, and you know what? It's it's Sep. And so if Sep says it, I can't help but think that I've I've yet got a lot more to learn. So that's my answer. I'm sticking to it. <laughs> um, in the next section, food should be our medicine. The solution is always the same to me. We need an all-embracing ecological rejuvenation of our planet, not ordered from the top down, but on all levels, decentralized, self-sufficient, and diverse. Ah, yeah, that's nice. That's, I feel that's, 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 uh, that's exactly it. And I, I kind of feel like whenever uh, I go onto the internets away from permies, and then I start to talk about my book. Every single time these guys show up and they say, I am the greatest criminal in the world because I am blaming the individual for the problem that we have now instead of blaming the people that have done the great wrongs. And... um and so therefore I'm, I'm getting people rather, so people are now 
going to go because they followed my advice and they're going to build a rocket mass heater. Whereas they could take that same time and they could write angry letters to politicians and tell them to stop being bad. So therefore, I am, uh, people are leaving, I guess, their strategy and coming to my strategy. And therefore, their strategy is less likely to be effective. They're so jealous. <laughs> yeah, they're just jealous. Fuck those guys. Um, I think there's some truth to what they're saying. I, uh, however, I kind of think that it, for every 100 people that are angry at, at bad guys, only one of them will do anything. And what they do is really, really, really small, like, like write to a politician or or carry a sign to a protest or, or something like that. Whereas I feel like the people that are coming onto our team are um, actually changing things within their own life and they are reducing their own personal carbon footprint. And then as they continue down this path, then um, others observe what they are doing and, and follow it. I, I just kind of feel like if you've got a hundred people who are angry at bad guys and only one of them is actually like writing to politicians or whatever to, to express their anger and the other 99 are just complaining to people at the local bar or, you know, at Thanksgiving or, or whatever. And that's, that's as far as they go. I, I do feel like what we're talking about, things that you actually do at home, I, I think that that does make a big difference. Or if you have acreage and you implement the things that Sepulcher advocates. Or I would say that if you uh, meet somebody who has acreage and you can tell them about the things that Sepulcher advocates... I think that this is doing way more. I think the things that are in this book, the things that we're observing in the video right now, the the pictures that we're looking at right now, the all of these things is evidence of things that have been done. And and they're amazing. They are abs I mean, that's another thing too. Before we were talking about, well, what if you have a million acres of desert and you got 200 acres? Should you make a jungle there? Isn't that 200 acres? And then comes the whole thing of like, there, I think there's a lot of people that are going to say, it can't be done. And, and like, hey, this is, this is not a recipe, but totally a recipe. <laughs> and so it's like, it, clearly it can be done. You know, we just need to learn how to do it. All right. Um, That's a funny picture. Oh, <laughs> yeah. I um, I don't know. I feel like the Hoogles, so there's a picture of, of two Hoogles. So I'm going to tell the pod people what the pictures that we're looking at. There is the first Hoogle. It says, the Hoogle we want with a smiley face, and it has nice, deep sides. And then the next picture is, the hoogle we end up with, and the sides have kind of sloughed off, and now the sides are no longer steep. Well, and also, the, the dirt's really thin on the top, and it's it's really thick at the bottom because the dirt's all fallen down. Right, right. I feel like 
the hoogles that we have here at base camp are still quite steep. They're holding up rather well. And so we still have the hoogle we want, as opposed to the, the hoogle that we end up with, which has a frowning face. We still have the smiley face. Now, I think, and I, I, I'm pretty sure I mentioned this podcast where we had a guy here who is a permaculture instructor, and he was uh, he stopped by to be a guest instructor. And he basically made this argument that we have created the thing that we want, the smiley face Google culture, and he says it will become what you end up with, the frowny face. And it is inevitable. And, um, and, and the thing that I told him at the time is like, well, I think at the time that he was telling me this, it's like, these Google cultures at this moment are now two years old and they're still holding this shape. And it's like, I know why they're holding this shape and I've been trying to tell you, but you keep saying it doesn't matter why because they're going to always universally end up with the frowny face design. And I don't, I'm sure I've conveyed this in podcasts, haven't I? Like, basically it's, it's, if you've got your logs, like in this picture, all the sticks seem to be going along the hugel culture universally. Mm -hmm. But, if you also run some of your sticks the opposite direction, you know, short sticks going the other way or branches and stuff like that, mm -hmm. then you're going to add this uh, uh, soil structure, this, this structural engineering that will help it to stay upright. It'll keep it from sloughing out. So the... The thing that you see in the frowny face of the culture is mm -hmm. the angle of repose. So if okay. you just have this dirt and sand and you just make a pile, that's what you end up with is the angle of repose. But then if you add structural engineering to it, which will be the sticks going the other way also, oh. it kind of holds it all together. So, so not having all the sticks be parallel or roughly parallel with Correct. the axis aligning with the long axis of the hugel bed. Correct. You know that might be new. That might be new. Thank wow. you for saying. So, I, so it's now, now it's in a podcast. See, I can't remember all the things that I've said in podcasts before. I do feel like there's a lot more to be said and a lot more to add in. Uh, that's been out there somewhere. I don't know where, and I know I got that from more than just a visit to Wheaton Labs. But um, in any case, um, it does work. It's true. <laughs> and, I mean, look at ours. Look at ours here. There they are. They're holding up. So. I think well. it's harder to draw the picture. Sorry, it's harder to draw the picture where the sticks are all higgledy piggledy. Uh, and it's easier to draw the sticks like this picture where they're all sticking out at one end. Um, it might give people the false impression that that's the only sticks that you have is the all one direction ones. True. True. So I built and helped build a lot of Google beds, and I had always built them with the logs going the long axis of the Google bed, like the diagram implies. And I would, 
I got to go to Wheaton Labs for the first time last fall for the BB20 event, and a group of us built Google Beds. And Josiah came up and he was talking to us about the importance of the logs going perpendicular to the long axis. So we had logs that were three feet and then two and a half feet and then two feet and 18 inches and 12 inches as you go up to help make that pyramid. And it was just such a different experience in laying a hoople bed. And it just makes so much sense that they would stay um, in that nice, rounded, tall shape because you've got the structure in there. It's kind of funny because uh, here... When I kind of want to, like, record a podcast about something, I feel like all the people are here, like, well, what would we talk about? There's really there's really nothing to say. And I kind of feel like I think in order to, to kind of get it going, we need, like, the, the people that are here and the people that are not here. So that way there can be the questions because for so – I mean, when, when I see stuff, on the internet where people are like, look at my hugel culture. I don't say anything because I want them to be encouraged that they're trying stuff. But at the same time, I'm kind of thinking like, okay, there's eight things that you did that pissed me off. (laughs) It's like, uh, but hey, you know, yeah, there's wood in there and there is dirt. So uh, fair enough. That is hugel culture. And I'm glad you're doing it. And I wish there were several things that you would do differently. And then it, and then every once in a while, I will pop in and say a little something. And universally, I get shouted down by dumb fucks um, saying stupid shit. And it's like they've just got no idea. Um. And and it's like uh, you can tell that they're right because they can say it very loudly and they can say it repeatedly. And so that proves that they are correct. And so I kind of, I don't know, this is this is part of what inspires me. Like, I've got to get that book written, the Hugel Culture book. Have any of you looked at the Hugel Culture book? What's there? Oh. I have. I've got that I've- draft of the Hugel Culture book. Yeah, I've looked at it recently because I've got some big hoogles that are in process down at the farm. And I needed to refer to it. I I mean, I kind of need to get that book done because of all of the stupid shit that I see. And I just kind of feel like uh we've got to get we've got to get the better information out there. Um and uh, the misinformation is like overwhelming the the accurate information and uh and i suppose it's fair to say that maybe each person is an artisan in hugu culture but when they present their style they don't present it as an artisanal approach like this is the way that they choose to do it they present it as the only way to do it and um, so I kind of feel like I'm willing to give up ground on like oh the way I do it is just a way it's not the way um, provided that you know I can, I'm allowed to have that space such as 
being able to um, confound the angle of repose by adding some structural engineering inside the culture by just having some sticks going the um, perpendicular direction, side to side. Pretty cool. I mean, the, the, the big logs that are going the way that, you know, the way that you would normally think, those are good too. But the side-to-side stuff is also good and helpful. So um, I think the other one that drives me crazy is when people make a big pile of logs and then start throwing dirt on the pile. Mm. That one drives me nuts. It's like that won't that won't work. You need to put down uh, a layer of wood and a layer of soil, and a layer of wood and a layer of soil, and a layer of wood and a layer of soil. That's that's the way to do it. And then people who make hugu culture beds that are only like a foot and a half tall, those those make me crazy. Also, it's kind of like, uh, oh no, uh, make them seven feet tall, please, seven feet tall at least. I mean, if you want to go bigger, that's cool. But the stuff that's a foot and a half tall, um, no thanks. And then, and then there's the stuff where they first dig a pit. And then they throw the wood into the pit. You know, I I, I kind of mm-hmm. think if you can if you can dig down, put the wood on the ground, and then dig your paths, and then where your path is going to go, put that soil on top. So as your mm-hmm. path goes down and your hula culture goes up, you only have to make something that's roughly three or four feet tall. And then your path went down also three or four feet, and you're done in in much less time. Sorry, we as usual we go off talking about hugel culture in the middle of doing something else. All right. Well, I mean, Seth Halter introduced me to the topic, so hugels. That's true. That's true. And we're and I'm sure there's going to be some of that. I'm sure there's going to be some of that coming up in the book. Um, But page six. Landscapes are empty (laughs) because of land consolidation projects intended to create heavy machinery-friendly farm fields. Regions that were covered with mixed forests just a few generations ago are now bare monocultures or agricultural deserts. All the humid habitats, the lakes and ponds, the bogs, the hedges and gardens are gone. All right. I think I kind of alluded to this a little bit earlier. But the thing I like is where he mentions agricultural deserts. This is my first time. I mean, I've seen him point at a conifer forest over and over again and say it's a desert. And um, that is powerful. It it did take me a while to grok that, but I I feel very comfortable with it now and have for many years. I get it, and I agree. Um, Oh, we were talking about desert for a long time. This is what he means. The agricultural desert. Desert or paradise? Yeah. 
Which, by the way, uh, somebody was saying something about how this book does not talk about how to convert deserts into paradise. But I think it does. I do think it does, but I don't think that's... When I, when I first saw the title of the book, I thought he's gonna, this is going to be just an instructional going from A to B. But, she, but reading this first chapter, it makes me think that the deserts are everywhere. It's not just in the desert that it is a desert. The desert is the conifer uh, desert. It is the, the agricultural monocrops. It is it is the the dry swamps that we have houses on now. It's it's not just the desert that you might think of in the picture if you look at the top of the book. Uh, it's all everywhere. It's it's much bigger. So the picture at the top of the book, I think, is the his um, Spanish project, and that is a place where it was like this lush uh, forest and savanna. It was it was brushy and thick with life. And then of course what you see here is it's dying and then and this is the place where those are I think those are oak trees. And the oak trees are all dying. And the solution from the tree holzer people the pre-holzer experts was to inject the trees with mm-hmm. something to fight off whatever fungus or whatever is killing them. And Sepp's position was that the fungus is part of nature. And it's like you've, you've killed this land and so these trees don't fit here anymore. We're going to have to grow something else here. So I'm putting a fungus in there to take these trees out for this other thing we're going to grow now. I, I kind of, but anyway, what Sep did is that he believed that this place used to have a whole bunch of lakes. And so he wanted to reintroduce those lakes um, and save the trees. The lakes would save the trees. And sure enough, the trees, the trees came back to life once once that reintroduced the lakes. All right, I am uh, moving ahead several pages because the next thing I have marked is on page ten. Does anybody have anything they want to talk about before page ten? Yeah, I have something on page eight where he says water needs to be where nature has designed it to be, as moisture in the soil and in forests and as moving water in natural rivers, streams, and lakes. Mm-hmm. Only water that is allowed to seep into the ground and connect with the soil mineralizes itself and becomes healthy drinking water. Only water that is allowed to move cleans itself. I just thought that was really interesting. Right. The argument against pond liners. Oh, right, right. So I, I do believe that all of Sepp's um, ponds, all of his um, lakes and ponds, I mean, they're going, the, part of the design is they're going to be leaky. Mm-hmm. Just get over it. They're going to leak. And that's just part of it. That's part of how it works. I, right. I, what I took from this page and from a lot of the pages is kind of the 
inverse of the permaculture saying that the problem is the solution, where he's talking about all their solutions are the problem. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I it's wish like, I... There's, there's like one initial problem that was like, you know, 200 years ago there was some little problem and someone came up with a solution for it, and that created three more problems, and, and, and you extrapolate that, and here we are now. I wish I could memorize the story along those lines for Yellowstone National Park. And I remember that it was like a hundred some years ago, they needed to fix a problem that they saw. So they did this big project to fix things. And then that caused a bunch of, like, for example, one of the things was is that there were too many wolves. They, they went out and, and killed all the wolves. And I'm sure we've all seen that thing in the last few years where it showed how bringing the wolves back has improved things at Yellowstone. Um, But it's like, you know, then they had the the giant fires that were the result of some of their previous choices to fix things. So, yeah, I love that. The solution is the problem. Um, So, and I... And maybe, and that was part of the thing that I guess uh, Katie was bringing up earlier. Like, if you've got this big desert, should we? And so we're saying, yes, we've got to bring our solution there. And it could turn out to be that someday the solution is the problem. It's, it's like that whole story about Bill Mollison going to that town in Australia, which the, the whole town was about to, to go under, and then um, they hired Bill Mollison to basically save the town because the desert was just taking everything. And the whole town was going to be just consumed by the desert and there'd be no town left. So Bill Mollison jumped in and he did a whole bunch of permaculture stuff and saved the town. And now they hate him because of it. <laughs> because of all these fucking honey locust trees and their giant thorns everywhere. So, turns out that Bill Mollison planted thornless honey locusts all over the place. But, of course, eventually they grew up and had babies, and not all of the babies were thornless. And, uh, you know, honey locust thorns are fascinating things, but the honey locusts did really, really well there and re-greened the whole area, captured the area from the desert, took it back from the desert. So, there you go. There you go. You get to be hated for saving them. This podcast is continued in part three. Don't forget, go out to patreon.com slash Paul Wheaton and make a pledge for future artifacts.